0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, if you would, please, one last time, open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. What you're about to hear is the living and active word of God. Please submit your hearts and your wills to it. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Before we go to prayer, a quick update. We prayed for Jeff and Liz this morning. If you saw the email this morning, it looked very scary for Jeff. Uh, We've received much, much different news as of, I think, lunchtime or by the end of the service. He's doing exceptionally well and is looking to go home to his house. So massive answer uh, to prayer. Continue to pray for them while things are looking uh, good. um, These things do take time to recover from. So thank you for your faithful prayers. Continue to hold them up and uh, let's give thanks to God for being one who delights to hear and to answer our prayers. Our great God and Father, we praise and worship you for hearing us and for answering our prayers and showing tremendous kindness on Jeff and Liz and, and showing kindness to our church, oh God. We thank you for the good report we've heard. We pray for uh, a full and swift recovery for Jeff. And Lord, we thank you for the dear brother that he is and for the sweet sister that Liz is to us. What a treasure they are to our church, oh God. Please, please strengthen them. Please be near them. Cause your presence to be a great comfort to them and to their family. We thank you for our church um, family here at Grace. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters, for the way that they love us, for the way that they care for one another, for the way that they encourage and build up one another to love and good deeds. We pray that you would protect us, protect us from believing things that are not true of you, protect us from division and from things that would seek to divide and bring schism to the body of your church. Father, help us not to take our unity for granted, but to fiercely fight for it and to defend it against any incursion from our enemy. We pray that you'd be with our brother Brian and sister Ariel as they seek to get some rest. Lord, please um, provide for them an abundance of rest and refreshment. We pray for our own souls today as we turn this afternoon to your word. Open our eyes to see and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. We pray that your spirit would work among us, to transform us more into the likeness and the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is always sad when we, well, when I get to the the end of a book, uh, whether it's 1 Samuel or Jonah or John or any of the books I've preached, you, you, be, you build a bit of a relationship with each and every book, and so... One of the last things I do in, prepara- or in preparing for a sermon like this at the end would be to actually take all my commentaries that I leave out on my desk and like go say farewell to them and put them on a shelf because they've been friends and older brothers and helpers along the way. And so it, it always is like a bittersweet uh, to finish a book of scripture, one that we've got familiar with, and uh, there's always a bit of sadness in there, but... We'll just muscle through it anyway. Uh, As we looked at this morning, we said that uh, you can learn a lot by listening to the way in which the Apostle talks about people in the church and the way that he encourages the church, and it gives us a glimpse into what church life looked like uh, here in, well, Colossians chapter 4. And while the circumstances, we might tend to think of the early church as like this mythically sweet time where everyone had everything in common, and you just go like, man, to go back and be part of that. Well, I I think you have rose-colored glasses. Well, that would still probably be an uh, understatement. Go back and realize that, well, the guy riding them, and half the guys he was referring to were in jail or had been in jail or had been beaten for their faith. The the context in which the New Testament church finds itself is not an easy one. Her ministers are being uh, arrested, uh, beaten, and at many occasions killed. The church itself is afflicted. They believe in a, a legal religion, and so they are having to be secretive. And yet, while those circumstances might seem to be uh, those that would hinder the church, we find Quite the opposite. We find that the difficulties of the church are used to actually cause grace to flourish and for the church to grow in its depth as well as its breadth. It's as though, or not as though, as the world rages against the church, the church does not shrink back from these things. If anything, she grows. And in seasons of difficulty, you can look back through church history, the seasons of difficulty have been seasons of growth and the seasons of ease have been the most dangerous ones. And I bet if you reviewed your life, you could see the very same pattern. While it wasn't fun, while you wouldn't have volunteered for the trial, doesn't God use the tough seasons to cause grace to flourish. I think it was uh, Roger and I's favorite Puritan. You're allowed to have favorite Puritans, right, Roger? So it was Thomas Watson. He said, grace grows best with a winter wind in the face. There's something about grace that thrives in adversity. It thrives in weakness. It thrives in the tough areas of our life, and what a kindness of God to do that. And so as we've looked at, well, what is the church or what is church life like in the morning service, and we're going to look at the same uh, question here in the afternoon, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that all of the the pieces that we'll look at cannot be divorced from that grace which grows best in the rocky, tough, cold seasons. If you just think back on what we looked at this morning, that the the church is made of all kinds of people, what could you attest that to if if not to God's grace? Isn't it his kindness that he puts a whole bunch of people not like me and not like you in the church? What a gift that is. You might say, it makes it hard. It, It does. But isn't it also a kindness? that you get to see the grace of God working in the life of someone so different to you and your blind spots and theirs don't tend to line up. And they can see things in your life that you can't. And you can see things in their life that they can't. And they always love it when you point them out. All right, they don't always love it when you point them out. But we want to get to that point, right? Where we welcome the loving kind correction of brothers and sisters and we've seen that it's out of that giant group of mixed people that God makes a family that is shares the blood of Christ and shares the forgiveness of sins and have union with Christ and therefore union with one another and if you could think well where is that union besides heaven right on this side of it besides heaven where is that union seen most clearly What's seen most clearly when the Lord's Supper is served on the Lord's Day, right? Doesn't that speak uh, to you, both your union with the Savior and your union with all those who share that same cup and share that same bread, right? There's one bread, one cup. We share them together and it shows that we are one Family together with one another. And then from that, we see that we, in, in growing together and in working together, that we then as family love one another and care for one another. And then we also, as an expression of that care and of that love and of that family tie, we pray for one another. Those were the first four aspects of church life that we looked at this morning. We want to consider four more in our time this afternoon. And the first is this. What is the church or what is the church like? Well, those who are in the church are marked by faithfulness. Those who are in the church are marked by faithfulness. If you would just look over at verse 7. You see that Tychicus will uh, tell you all about my activities. Look at how Tychicus is described. He's a beloved brother. We covered that this morning. And faithful in his ministry and fellow. And he's a fellow servant in the Lord. Look at verse 9. Onesimus, our, well, he uses the term again, our faithful brother. So already with the first two names in the list, one of the defining marks of who they are and what they are like, uh, Paul says they are marked by being well, men of faith or faithful, and we 'll look at which one of it is it there's another aspect well that those were the only two occasions of that specific word. If you drop your eyes all the way down to verse seventeen you'll notice in the in the exhortation given to Archippus, he says, "See to it that you fulfill your ministry. What is that? if not, the apostle Paul telling the believers in um, Colossae to directly exhort Archippus to be, to fulfill his ministry. What is that if not an exhortation to be faithful at the post which God has given you? Now lots of people have asked or could wonder, that seems like an odd thing. I I can't think of another occasion where Paul says, here's an exact quote that you're supposed to tell this guy, Archippus. Uh, it, It is a bit odd But why would he be telling Archippus, see to it, that you fulfill your ministry? It could be a couple of different things. Remember who Archippus' parents were. Philemon was his dad. And his dad would be getting a very tough letter, probably that same day, having to do with what forgiveness and church life looked like with a returning rebel refuge slave, Onesimus, coming back to him. You think pastoring the church is hard enough? Try pastoring it when your dad is being publicly exhorted and well, kind of corrected. That could be a tough measure. Maybe it was that. Maybe Paul had heard from other folks who had come from Colossae and spoken of some of the unique difficulties and the hardships that Archippus had, or maybe he was he was feeling just really self-critical and inadequate in all these things for whatever reason it was, and if it, we, we obviously don't need to know it because if we needed to know it, would Paul have told us? Yeah. So guess what? Don't need to know. All we need to know is that our Archippus is being specifically uh, exhorted to be faithful. Why? Well, that's a mark of those who are in the church. Doesn't matter if they sit in the pew or if they fill the pulpit. Faithfulness must mark the people of God. If you look over at verse 10, you'll see another element of faithfulness. You might say, well, I don't see the word faith anywhere in verse 10. You say, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Well, remember what we talked about with regards to Aristarchus this morning. He was beaten in Ephesus, still at it. He's imprisoned here, still at it. What is that, if not faithfulness, throughout the ministry? And if we could look then with those kinds of eyes at the text in front of us, you see Aristarchus, while not named as faithful, shows by his life that he's faithful. You could see with Luke, the hundreds or perhaps even thousands of miles that he traveled with the apostle Paul. What is that if not faithfulness? Picking up with Paul early in ministry and being the last guy there through several shipwrecks, which I would be a little adverse to getting on a boat after one shipwreck, but then again, maybe the thought was like, it surely won't happen twice. But it did. So you can just see in Luke's faithfulness, he's always there. He's humbly. He's only mentioned by name three times in the New Testament. But he's always there. He's found in the, the plural pronoun, we, in so many seasons in the book of Acts. He's there faithfully, namelessly serving. He's faithful. If you were to look at the Sunday in and Sunday out um, life of nympha. What is she doing? Well, all we know is that the church was in her house. Yeah, the church was in her house illegally. Do you think that that would have put at risk her own livelihood and her home? I think it might have. But what does she do every week? The doors are open for saints to come. She's willing to risk her livelihood in service to the church. What is that if not faithful? If you were to look at Archippus, even though he's being exhorted to fulfill his ministry, he is one who's preaching a gospel illegally, a gospel that wound up getting Tychicus thrown in jail at one period, Aristarchus in jail, and, well, I don't know about uh, Tychicus, excuse me, Aristarchus and Epaphras and Paul, all in jail because of that very same message that, that uh, Archippus preaches week in and week out. What is that, brothers and sisters, if not faithfulness? And so we'd have to take a step back and say, well, what does Paul mean with this, the the two specific elements of faithful in verse 7 and 9, and then the other observations we made about how faith has worked its way out in their life? Does he mean by faithful that they are full of faith, i.e., they believe the right kind of stuff, or does he mean they're steadfast? I mean, they're, they're trustworthy. They, they, they do the right things week in and week out. And you obviously would know my answer would be both. Can you have the one without the other? I actually don't think you can. So if we were to look at what kind of people they have, as far as what they believed, in this text you find a list of men and women who are men and women of faith, lion-hearted men and women, gospel-believing men and women, Christ-adoring men and women of faith. You could put it this way. They really believed what they said they believed. You might say, well, that just seems too painfully obvious. pause for a moment and just consider the, the magnitude of that. They believed the truths of the gospel down into their bones. They really believed it. It wasn't to them a conservative tradition with which they were raised. It wasn't to them a set of religious platitudes that sounded uh, great to other people. It wasn't to them a Facebook status on their bio page thing or whatever. And it wasn't uh, a, a set of fire insurance, spiritually speaking. It wasn't easy for them to be a Christian culturally. Far easier for you and I to identify with being a Christian in our day. They didn't, this was not advantageous for them, societally speaking. They believed it. They really did. And they were willing to bank all that they had and all that they are on those truths. If this gospel failed, then what Paul said would be true of them would be true of them. They were of all people the most pitiable, the most to be pitied, but they believed it down into their bones. And then that belief... That believing it the down in their bones actually then translated into a faithful way of living. You actually can't get to the faithful way of living without faith in the bones and you won't have faith in the bones that then doesn't result in faithful living. They are an inseparably hitched together. So the one who says, I have all this faith and I'm just rock solid on it, and yet you look at their life and it's not there, I have to then go back and say, I, I, I don't believe this. Because if this were really true, it, it must work its way out. Not perfectly, not without exception, not without faith. No, I'm not saying any of that. But faith is hardwired to be put into action in the way that you live. And so they lived that kind of way. It worked its way out in their daily life. Now that isn't to say, because sometimes we can look back on church history or the church here in the New Testament and we can see it with a a very optimistic view. It wasn't to say that these folks of which we're speaking didn't struggle. They did. It wasn't to say that they didn't have fears, anxieties, doubts, discouragements, pains, or losses. I have every reason to believe that they had all of those common experiences that we have, but they had something greater than those pains, fears, doubts, anxieties, discouragements, and struggles. They they had a faith that was greater than those, and so was willing to work its way out in the middle of those things. It wasn't as though faith said, you know, I'm going to wait for for life really to calm down, and and then, you know, kind of when I get a bigger schedule, get more established in my career, then faith's going to work its way out in faithfulness. No, it was in the middle of those things. There might even be an argument that it's, again, we want to be careful at this point. You might say it was almost because of those difficulties that faith grew like it did. Christian, if you wait for, the, for your life to calm down and for everything to be amiable, for your faith to be lived out, I don't think you'll ever live it out. The Christian life is, like grace, lived with the wind of adversity in its face. It's lived in the middle of the struggle and the doubts and discouragement and anxiety. It, that, that, that's where faith is fought. Paul did say it's the fight of faith, not the vacation of faith, right? I wish he'd said the vacation of faith, but he didn't. Faith is a fight. So what is a fight? It fights its way out in the middle of all of the, the muck and the difficulty and the confusion of real life. The folks that are listed here, whether their name is Tychicus or Onesimus or Aristarchus, they believed the same things you believe. And they live very, very similar to the way that you live. They took their faith in Jesus Christ, and they had this world-changing, life-altering conviction. This should change everything about the way I live. Isn't that, isn't that, I mean, if you were trying to explain that to a neighbor who had no familiarity with Christianity, they would think you were a loon. So you believe in this guy that died and rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago and that, and that somehow that changes everything. Yeah, that, 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 that summarizes it. Really, and you think that he's able to deliver you into a new world and eternity and, 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 and that he's willing to share with you an eternal inheritance? Yeah, yeah, and I actually think that that changes the way that I work and the way that I engage in marriage and the way that I parent my kid. I actually think it changes and affects all of that. A faithful Christian life, brothers and sisters, doesn't try to limit that faith to these little cute containers. It saturates all of it. It's not like you can have this box that is Christian and then we have, Family and work and politics, they all bleed together. It's not like waffles, it's like spaghetti. It's just one little big mess. It's after lunch, so maybe a food analogy will work. Secondly, this afternoon, we want to consider that the church works or serves together. I'm sure even as I read it, you couldn't help but notice just the sheer number of times Words of service or work or labor were mentioned. And actually that kind of like begins to really fill in the colors of the, of, what a, of what church life looks like with those kinds of words. If you look at verse 7, he's a, a faithful, the word he uses is minister. It's the word we, we get our term deacon or servant from. Verse 7, again, he's a fellow slave. So he's one who takes orders from, him from, not from himself, but from someone else. Verse 11, he he calls someone a, or uh, I guess this would be justice, right? Yeah, a fellow worker. He says that Epaphras uh, agonizes in his praying. He says in verse 13 that that praying was a, uh, that he worked hard, that the, the Way that he says it is really, it was an arduous labor. Now, moms in particular would understand this word labor is not like synonymous with vacation or easy or delightful. It's called labor for a reason, right? Because it well, it's hard work. And so that's the that's actually the same kind of word that Paul uses to describe the way that a from a distance ministered for the saints. The word he used to describe ministry? Labor. Same word we use to describe childbirth and digging ditches, right? It's hard work. Verse 16. Uh, there's a, a command or a need for intentionality. to Give oneself to the ministry of the word. That's also a, a service work kind of idea. Verse 17, this will be the last one. Um, Archippus needs to be uh, exhorted to fulfill his ministry, to fulfill the, the serving that was given to him by the Lord. All of those are the words that describe church ministry. And maybe you think like, okay, wow, that helps me understand what Brian and Charlie and Daniel do. And, you know, that ministry is what they do. Ministry is what we all do. Now, does, do ours look a little different? Yeah, it does, right? Some are very public. But every Christian is, a, is to be engaged in the hard work of Christian ministry. This is not a spectator sport. This is one where you actually engage. This is one that you as a Christian are to give yourself to in the hard work of ministry. And if you want to know what is it that you signed up for in the Christian life or were drafted, that's probably a better way to, as a Calvinist, better to talk about you were drafted, you didn't sign up because you thought the pay was good. You were drafted into this. Well, what is it that you've been brought into? A ministry where you are called a servant and a slave. You take orders from someone vastly greater than you, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not your own captain. You are not your own master. You serve a greater. What is the church? There are people who are just, they're just possessed by this reality they are not their own, but belong, body and soul, and life and death, to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, a people who belong, not to themselves, but to Christ. What do they do in the carrying out of those duties? Well, they actually, the things that they engage in are, can be described by this, work, agony, and labor might say, this is not a great sales pitch. I'm not intending for it to be on. I'm just telling you what we are involved in. This is what ministry is. So I, you might say, this is a huge bummer. I, well, maybe we can look at it from the other direction. Maybe it would be an encouragement. Have you ever found ministering the gospel to those around you arduous, agonizing, and hard I have, if you're like, no, I haven't. I'm like, oh, I don't know what you're doing, but you either have it really figured out or not at all. One of those two. It's hard. It is, have you ever been with someone who's grieving immeasurable loss? If you don't feel just how hard it is to try to comfort them without being just a a hindrance in the midst of it, I don't, I know you felt it. Parents, you know with ministering the gospel to your kids, is it arduous, agony, and hard? Yeah. Spouses, you've ministered the gospel to your spouse. Church members, you've ministered to other members. There's times where ministry is hard, and rather than thinking to yourself, well, the problem must be me. Maybe I'm just really bad at this Christian thing. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think ministry in a fallen world is just hard and it's okay for you to acknowledge this is hard because if I just think of it this way it should be easy it isn't easy number one I, I've misread the bible entirely at that point but if I think it should be easy it isn't easy therefore the problem must be me therefore I'm not sure I belong therefore I, I mean it goes down this terrible uh, slope of discouragement rather than saying well Jesus promised it to be hard yeah, he he well, he told the truth, it is. And then go to him for help and strength. And then go to him, be like, Lord, I need strength. I see the path, of, I, I see the fields to which you've called me. I see the friend to which you've called me to minister. I see my kids. I see my spouse. I see those around me. I, I, I see it, Lord, but I look at me and I go, uh not well equipped in and of me. I think that's just where you're supposed to be, because our eyes were never, at least in ministry, meant to be on us, as though I could find in myself a secret little compartment of of great talent that was sufficient for everything I needed, but I was meant to find this empty, wretched thing and went, I need help. (laughs) That's what we're to do. And, in, in, and upon realizing that, brothers and sisters, going to the one who says, ask. I delight to lavish grace. I delight to help. He loves doing it in the weak, broken, confusing areas of life. Th- those are the ones he loves the best. But going to him, rather than thinking, man, I must not be cut out for this. Therefore, I should stop. No, I'm not cut out for this, but he gives grace to those who are weak and who ask. So, brothers and sisters, is ministry working, serving, difficult, agony, hard? Yes. But does he promise to supply needed strength? He does. You might say, well, I don't know about strength, but I'm a fool, I need wisdom. If only the Bible said something about asking wisdom of God and that he would love to give it. Well, it does say that. But here's the other element that I want us to not miss. You understand, we've mentioned this before, and I know you know this, but it it bears repeating. You are not, in, in your life as a Christian... To be self-serving, right? It isn't about you. When you became a Christian, life suddenly stopped being about you. Now, sometimes it takes us us a while to catch up to that reality, but that's the reality. But who is it now about? You might say others, and I'll say, okay, but that's only a secondary layer. It's ultimately about him. Didn't Paul mention this in verse 11? Who are the workers working for? The very kingdom of God itself. Who's the one who called them into this ministry? Look at verse 17. Well, the Lord. The Lord did it. Look at verse 12. Who's he a servant of? The Lord Christ, or Christ Jesus. Uh, Look back at verse 7. Who's he a, a servant and a minister of? Well, he's a minister of in the Lord. Don't lose sight of this you serve in the working of your of faith out in the middle of your life, you're serving the resurrected, ascended, seated Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you serve. Now there would be a quick question which would go something like this: Who are you to be tasked with such a service? Be well, I'm a nobody. Good thing he doesn't give it based on deservings. Otherwise, none of us would have that. There's a second piece to it. When you serve one another, you're serving the very bride of Christ. Those all kinds of people that we talked about in the first point this morning, those ones that are so different from you, those of us who are hard uh, to get along with and love many times, When you patiently endure and love and serve one another, in a real sense, you're serving Christ, and in another real sense, you're serving his bride that he values so much. What an honor that would be. Not would be, what an honor that is. So whether it's in faithful parenting whether it's our Sunday school teachers who teach our little ones faithfully week in and week out, whether it's those who help put away tables and set up chairs and vacuum the floors and clean up or serve in the kitchen, all of these ways, whether it's serving in the nursery, and you might be like, I watch kids play with toys and change diapers. That didn't feel very like extravagant. You're serving the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't lose sight of that. What an honor that is. But if you allow the, the, the details of it to then cloud your, your vision and think, like, well, I don't know if I'm fully working up to my potential. You're so far beyond your potential and you're deserving at this point. Just eyes on Christ and the beauty to which he's called you to serve selflessly. And here's, here's another piece of it, brothers and sisters, to work hard. You realize heaven's called rest for a reason. It means we work now. And we want, like Paul, to spend and be spent for him. How many lives do you have? One. And you get to spend it for him. Don't squander it. Don't, don't waste it away on lesser things. Faithfully spend it on him and his kingdom, and his bride, and the nations that he is calling to himself. Thirdly, what is the church? The church is a group of people that suffer together. You're like, man, this is cheery. We go from hard work to suffering. Well, they're related. So if you look at verse seven, uh, he calls uh, Tychicus a faithful servant. Isn't there a degree of suffering when you are serving someone else, because by necessity of that, you're not serving who? When well, you're not serving you, it takes a degree of selflessness. If you look at verse 7 again, he is a fellow slave. Well, that means that you're not the boss. Christ is. If you look at all the elements of hard work in verses 11, 12, and 13, the working, the agony, the labor, all of those have, have elements of suffering to them. And then lest we uh, forget even the, the bigger category, the bigger context of what we're looking at, where was the book of Colossians written from? From prison. And Was this the only time he was in prison? No, he he actually was like a multiple offender when it came to preaching the gospel. Uh, Epaphras was in prison. uh, Aristarchus was in prison. And like hanging over that is this real sense of, you know, this costs people something. And that while we've really only known, at least on, on a bigger national level, ease that is the rare exception in the history of the church. We got the slightest little, uh, not, not even a taste. Maybe, like, uh, you know, when you walk in the kitchen and mom is making something that's good. If you walk in and smell Brussels sprouts, it's a different experience altogether. You're like, oh, no, I'm, not, I'm sick, mom. Kids don't do that. That's deception and lie. You shouldn't do it. But. You go and you smell one of your favorite meals, like you haven't tasted it yet, but you're you're closer than you were before. In COVID, we maybe smelled a little bit of what it was to not exactly be smiled upon. I remember when we were uh, in Seattle, or the People's Republic of Seattle. And we were, uh, we were doing our best to stay open. We had just moved back inside, and we weren't supposed to be there, and people were reporting us on online stuff. I remember I was teaching Sunday school, and I could see movement in the back. A person left, came back in, and talked to a deacon. The deacon got up and left and came in and, and sat down like this. I thought, oh, no, this can't be good. <laughs> So I, I get done with Sunday school, it was really distracting, and that deacon comes right up to me, he goes, there's a lot of policemen outside, and they want to talk to you. I thought, well, I guess it's time for prison ministry. <laughs> I walk outside, and there were like three or four squad cars all pulled in around. And I, I, I thought, in that moment, it was a good run while it lasted, but here we go, <laughs> we're going to jail for COVID. Dumb reason to go to jail. But anyway, uh, it was because a homeless person broke into my office and stole my car keys. That ended up being the whole thing about the. St- <laughs> that was why they were there. They wanted to give me my car keys back and see if I wanted to press charge. But for that moment, I smelled the Brussels sprouts of, oh, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> but you know, in our lifetime, we might well taste it. And in our kids' lifetime, they might well taste it. And I don't say it to be a, a discourager or a downer. You're like, how is that not a downer? What a privilege to suffer for the Lord. I'm not saying we'd seek it out. I, I pray that my kids grow up in a world and in a country where they freely exercise their faith unopposed. I, I really do. But if that day comes... We as the church should say, this is, this is something our, our brothers and sisters for two millennia have endured, and we simply take our place among them. That is part and parcel of what the gospel is about. Aristarchus knew what it was when he was beaten and imprisoned. Paul knew what it was. Do you remember? Or I guess you don't even have to remember. Look down at verse 18. How does he end the letter? Remember my chains. Is that not like a very over reference to, hey, remember the gospel might cost you, well, everything. Would it cost Paul ultimately everything in this life? Yeah, he ends up losing his life because of the gospel. The point isn't to, in, in, uh, to instill any fear. The point is for us to know and believe deep down in our bones such a gospel is so worth all the suffering that we could endure. Paul says in, in Romans that if we were to stand back and look at suffering on one end of the scales and eternal glory, we'd be like, oh, this is not fair. The little bit of suffering in this life is so small in comparison. Again, I say this by way of odd encouragement. If you suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not as though you are broken or you are doing something wrong. There are times where that comes with the territory. Embrace it as part of the lot that God has given. Seek him for the strength and the grace to suffer well, to suffer faithfully. But realize that when suffering happens, and it does in this life in all these various forms, the words of Christ are ringing true. In this life, you will have trials and tribulations. He warned us this would be the case. It's not like something is uh, wrong and should be avoided. His promises are coming true. Fourthly and lastly, the church is a place where we restore one another. The church is a place where we restore one another. There is a sad element to that, which means they're they're Arises times where restoration uh, is needed and it sadly isn't always seen. You may have noticed uh, in the morning I didn't really spend any time on uh, the person mentioned in verse 14, Demas. Demas here is with Paul. He's, He's listed among those who are serving Paul. So if you had on your resume for ministry helped Paul out, kind of got a shout out in one of his letters. Like, that's pretty good. Not a lot of people who could say, yeah, I was, you know, kind of, I hope Paul, you know, the apostle, he bounced some ideas off. It was like this give and take. It was like a collaboration kind of thing between him and I. That's a pretty good resume. Demas gets mentioned in two other places. The other one is in the sister letter, Philemon, verse 24 uh, he's giving his greetings. He says, uh, with regards to people who greet you, so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Sounds really similar to the letter we're in, because they're sister letters, they travel together. The only other time Demas gets mentioned, this is at the end of Paul's life, the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Not all of those, especially with Titus, I don't believe that was a departure in desertion as much as he was sent on ministerial duty. But Demas in particular is pointed out as deserting Paul. That is one of, I was tempted to tuck this point up under suffering because it is one of the things that we suffer i i alluded to it this morning there are people who aren't here anymore some of them have gone on in victorious triumph to heaven some god has graciously and lovingly just he moves people around so they've moved away and we wouldn't say they deserted us like no they they got a job somewhere else they moved it's okay But there are some that aren't here because they deserted, because they fell away, because the thing that Epaphras was praying for, the church in Colossae, was not true of them. They didn't stand mature or morally, but they fell. That's one of the really grievous, grievous, grievous things about the Christian life. It's really hard whether that's a child that goes astray or a church member that we used to sing or minister next to who aren't here, it's part of life in this post-Genesis three fallen world. He forsake him. Why did he forsake Paul? Why did he walk away from ministry in the church? He gives his answer. For love of the present world. Demas had a greater love for the present world than for the world that was to come. And that's heartbreaking. Because for a time, it seemed like the opposite was true. And as we've said multiple times, we are shaped and driven by the things that we love. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what you will be shaped by? Oh, my goodness, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're shaped by your love. But if the thing you love is this present world, Rest assured, it will shape you. Rest assured, it will have consequences. Rest assured, Christ won't share you. And you will have to pick one of the two masters. Demas, at the end of 2 Timothy, chose the world. Did he ever repent? I don't know. If he did, we're not told of it. But the grief that he fell away is real. And with that, we're ending Colossians. No, just teasing There's another person in the text who fell but didn't stay there. Look over at verse 10. And Mark, cousin of Barnabas, make sure you welcome him. You would know reading through uh, the book of Acts that John, Mark, or Mark, or John, however you want to describe him, uh, that John, like Demas, started out really good. I, I likened him to a kind of a quintessential raised in the church kid, even though that's a bit anachronistic. He was, he was, I mean, if your mom owned the upper room, like, man, that's a good, that looks good on the rest. That, that's a good thing going for you. He would have uh, seen Jesus. He later on hangs out with Peter. I mean, this is a great dude. He's handpicked by Paul and his cousin Barnabas to go on the first missionary journey that's a small group that's an awesome honor and something happened on the first journey where he taps out and goes away we're not told what it was we're not told why he did it some speculate that he thought uh, that cousin Barney or Barnabas whichever however he called him I could see him call him cousin Barney um, would be the boss, and Paul wasn't. He was like mad about that. I have no idea. If we needed to know, it would have told us. It doesn't, we don't need to know. Here's the main point. Something happened where he, he so slid away. Whether it was too tough, would it, would, maybe it was he got really physically ill, and that was a trial that pushed him. I, I don't know what it was. But in Acts 15, verse 37 and on, now Barnabas, this is looking forward to the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take with them John Mark. So whatever the, it was, Barnabas believed that, it was, that he had recovered from it. But Paul thought it best to not take him with him uh, because he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. Whatever happened, Paul is not having it and he would not have them, uh, We would not have gone with them on this work. Again, an odd way to refer to ministry as work. And there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by his brothers in the grace of the Lord. And they went to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. As a side note, if you have to side with a cousin or the apostle Paul, pick Paul. Cousins are always suspect. I don't know what it is about cousins, but, or at least my cousins. Anyway, something had happened where he'd he'd withdrawn, and it was bad. I believe even Barnabas knew it was bad. There was some restoration between him and Barnabas, and Barnabas wanted it back. Paul was not into it. Uh, Does the New Testament give a judgment as to who was right? Uh, No, not really. But by the time we get to where we are here, it seems very, very clear that Paul and him had been restored to one another. What what a beautiful, I mean, just look at the way he describes it. He he says that uh, Mark would then greet them. If he comes to you, welcome him. Why would Paul have to tell a group that worshiped in Asia Minor, hey, if you see Mark, welcome him. Because Christians have a way of picking up offenses of other people and making them their own. So whatever happened between Mark and Paul, maybe the church at Colossae might be like, oh, this is Mark. Okay, yeah, we're not having this guy. Mark, or excuse me, Paul wanted to make sure from his comment here, and then he also uh, makes a similar comment uh, at the end of 2 uh, Timothy. It seems as though he wanted the restoration to be as public as the fallout had been. That's important. Listen to as, as I read uh, from 2 Timothy 4. For, uh, listen to the contrast. He puts Demas and Mark side by side again here. For Demas in love with the present world is deserted and gone. Uh, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. He's very useful to me in ministry. What a beautiful story or illustration of of the difficulties that happen in the Christian life, but also the way in which we should seek restoration of those. The church is a place where we want to live graciously and patiently with one another. Doesn't mean that there are times where things get off the rails badly. It does mean that. Are there times where we in this life don't get to see how that track ended for someone. Yeah, and and that's heartbreaking. But there are other times where we get to see someone brought back by God's grace, and then we as church restore them and love them. Isn't that the kind of forgiveness and grace that should mark God's people? Isn't that the kind of grace that God lavishes on us? it should be so far from the minds of God's people to be harsh with one another, to be account keepers with one another. The simple way that I would ask it is like this. Is that the way Christ is with us? It's not. He doesn't keep records of us when he's forgiven us. He doesn't deal with us harshly as our sins deserve. He's kind. And so we as a diverse group of people from all kinds, as a big family that live life together in a broken world, guess what's going to happen? Sinning against one another is going to be something that happens. We should seek repentance and restoration in those. So whether you're a, a Christian, well, hopefully a Christian church member, That's the, well, those are the ones that we should have. But uh, whether your marriage shouldn't we be quick to forgive and restore in marriage, or how about in parenting, or how about friendships, or how about church member relationships, the grudges that so often mark churches, and you can go, you can visit a church and realize, like, this is not a good place. Everyone has accounts on everybody. That's not the way it should be. I love how public. Paul wanted to make John Mark's restoration. It would have been easy for him to welcome him back on the quiet and just be like, "Don't do that junk again." And then, <laughs> but he humbly, I think, I think it took a, a, some humility on Paul's part as well to say, "Listen, you receive Mark. He's so helpful. He's so rich to me. He's so good." That's the way that we need to treat one another with the graciousness and the forgiveness that we've received. You might say, but I've forgiven this person, this spouse, this child, this church member, like so many times. Yes. And I don't downplay that it's hard. All I'm simply saying is that if compared to how many times Christ has forgiven you, there is no comparison. That kind of graciousness pervades God's people and should pervade them evermore. We need to be gracious like our Lord Jesus Christ is gracious. We need to be kind to one another, patient. It doesn't mean we we bend on truth. It doesn't mean we compromise. No, it doesn't mean any of that stuff. But it means that we strive and strive and strive to be tenderhearted towards one another, quick to forgive, and slow to anger. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, thank you so much for your word. At times it is a a healing balm to our souls. At other times it's a, a surgeon's scalpel to our hearts. And we pray that it would be both today. We pray that you would work among us. God, we pray that we would be a people who delight to labor in your fields. We pray that we'd be a faithful people a people willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, knowing he's preeminently worth it. And make us a people quick to forgive, oh God. We pray that we would be marked by the kindness that we've been shown by Christ. Father, these things are staggering. that They seem overwhelming. But we know that by your spirit, these can be realities in our lives in fuller degrees than they are now. And so we pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us. Help us to be a kind of people as we've read of today. We pray this for the good of the church and for the greatness of your name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.